Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the Southern California Research Lodge. Uh, I'm actually not sure which issue it's from, but it also states that this article has also appeared in number 393 of a past fraternal review and is reprinted in the one I'm reading. It appeared in a main Lodge of Research newsletter, which they gave credit to it from the Masonic Relief Association of the United States. And so with all that, let's share arts, parts, and points. Frequently, the student of masonry will encounter words and phrases in the course of degrees which have little or no explanation. Definitions have faded during the years until today a once detailed lecture has become simply a few words. Masonic tradition has it that in 926, King Athelstan called all of the operative masons in England to meet with him in York. Many days of discussion took place in an effort to right the wrongs and inequities which then existed towards the Masons who were engaged in many activities for the king. It is said he began to build many abbeys, monasteries, and other religious houses, as also diverse fortresses for the defense of his realm. From this meeting came 15 points and 15 articles. Over the course of years, three articles and three points have disappeared, leaving only 12 each. These points have now become known as the 12 original points. The usage and meanings have changed over the years. The following appeared in the English lectures prior to 1813. Quote, there are in Freemasonry 12 original points which form the basis of the system and comprehend the whole ceremony of initiation. Without the existence of these points, no man ever was or can be legally and essentially received into the order. Every person who is made a Mason must go through these twelve forms and ceremonies, not only in the first degree, but in every subsequent one. Each of the points became symbolized by one of the twelve tribes of the Hebrews. The points and tribes are grouped as follows. Opening of the Lodge, Reuben. Preparation of the Candidate, Simon. Report of the Senior Deacon, Levi. Entrance of the Candidate, Judah. The Prayer, Zebulun. The circumambulation, Issachar, advancing to the altar, Dan, the obligation, Gad, instruction of the candidate, Asher, investiture of the lambskin, Naphtali, ceremony of the northeast corner, Joseph, and closing of the lodge, Benjamin. Today, some jurisdictions use the words arts, parts, and points in their ritual. The points have been explained. The arts means the knowledge of things made known. In addition to the division into degrees, parts is also an old word for degrees or lectures. A portion of the articles is also used by some jurisdictions in the installation ceremony of the Worshipful Master. So that ends the quote. So that was from uh, before 1813 as part of the lectures. And so now the 15 articles and 15 points. The establishment at York in England, 926 AD, of the charter with 15 articles and 15 points by King Athelstan. The granting of the charter has become accepted history in the York Rite. The ancient charter was revived in 1705 when the first Grand Lodge of England was instituted. The 15 articles. 1. 
The master mason must be steadfast, trusty, and true, and render perfect justice to both workman and his employer. 2. The master mason shall be punctual in his attendance at the general congregation or assembly. 3. The master must take no apprentices for less than seven years. 4. The master must take no apprentices who are bondsmen, but only such as are free and well-born. 5. The master shall not employ a thief or maimed man for an apprentice, but only whose who are physically fit. 6. The master must not take craftsman wages for apprentice wages. 7. The master must not employ an immoral person. 8. The master must maintain a standard of efficiency by not permitting incompetent workmen to be employed. 9. The master must not undertake to do work which he cannot complete. 10. No master shall supplant another in the work undertaken. 11. The master shall not cause the mason to work at night except in the pursuit of knowledge. 12. The master must instruct his apprentices in everything they are capable of learning. 13. No mason shall speak evil of his fellow's work. 14. The master shall take no apprentices for whom he has not sufficient labor. 15. The master is not to make false representations nor compromise the sins of his fellows. The 15 points. 1. Those who would be masons and practice the Masonic art are required to love God and his holy church, the master for whom they labor and their Masonic brethren, for his is the spirit of masonry. 2. The mason must work diligently in working hours that he may lawfully refresh himself in the hours of rest. 3. The mason must keep the secrets of his master, his brethren, and the lodge faithfully. 4. No mason shall be false to the craft, but maintain all its rules and regulations. 5. The mason shall not murmur at fair compensation. 6. The mason shall not turn a working day into a holiday. 7. The mason shall restrain his lust. 8. The mason shall be just and true to his brethren in every way. 9. The mason shall treat his brethren with equity and in the spirit of brotherly love. 10. Contention and strife shall not exist among brethren. 11. The mason shall caution his brother kindly about any error into which he may be about to fall. 12. The mason must maintain every ordinance of the assembly. 13. The mason must not steal or protect one who does. 14. The mason must be true to the laws of masonry and to the laws of his country. And 15. The mason must submit to the lawful penalty for any offense he may commit. Such were the interpretations laid down for the 15 articles and 15 points. Harmony prevails, so mode it be. The following article is from the Southern California Research Lodge and is titled Masonic Investigation. And then the subtext is, this is from the Israel Freemason, number 2, 1995, quoting Most Worshipful William C. Council, past Grand Master, from the Cable Toe, January-February 1995. It is incumbent upon us, upon receipt of a petitioner for Masonic degrees, to examine the petitioner's personal background, his habits, his general philosophy of life, his reputation in the community, and among his fellow workers and associates. We are to diligently inquire among those who know him best and who can be relied upon to furnish us unbiased information as much as possible. From this information, we are to collate and evaluate the petitioner's qualifications to become one of us. It is not the easiest of Masonic tasks. Things the Worshipful Master must consider. Stress in appointing investigators. In appointing members of the investigating committee, the Worshipful Master should not concern himself with the convenience of any one of the investigators. 
He should not appoint the investigator merely because the latter lives near or works in some proximity with the petitioner. Bearing in mind that not all brethren are skilled or adept at investigating work, the worshipful master, wherever possible, should select those who have had investigative experience or a talent for such. Because a brother is a fine ritualist or a great coach does not mean that he is a comp competent investigator. At the beginning of his year, therefore, the worshipful master is to examine his membership role and select certain brethren whom he knows to be qualified or have some talent as are required. He should rotate such committee assignments among those chosen so that no one group is overly burdened by work. The worshipful master should stress that the lodge brethren he appoints to serve as investigating committee members should consider such appointment a high honor, a visible expression of implicit trust and confidence in their abilities, their zeal, and their concern for the welfare of the lodge and Freemasonry. He should stress that by appointing them to the committee, he has clearly manifested his respect for their good judgment. Conferring with the appointed investigators, the Worshipful Master should remind them that no phase of Masonic work is more important than the thorough, impartial, and unbiased investigation of those who seek admission into our ranks. That as members of the investigating committee, they are the first line of defense against external enemies of the craft, as well as those who, through indifferent character, might be prone to bring discredit upon the craft, and that our fraternal security depends in great part on the ability of our own investigating committee and findings. The Worshipful Master should strongly advise each member of the investigating committee that after a thorough and painstaking investigation, and after he has exhausted all known sources of information, if he is still possessed of doubts of the petitioner's qualifications, the investigator should always, without variation or hesitation, resolve his doubts in favor of Freemasonry in the Lodge and not in favor of the petitioner. No man has the right to become a Freemason. It is a privilege controlled at the ballot box do's and don'ts for each investigator. Upon acceptance of his appointment, each member of this vitally important committee should ever bear in mind that he may be investigating a petitioner who might one day become worshipful master of his lodge, or one who may sometime wear the purple of the fraternity and rule and govern the grand jurisdiction. He may be investigating a man who will never become renowned in the fraternity or ever even attend lodge meetings very often, but who would accept the tenets and precepts of Freemasonry and live his future life in full accordance with the spirit of the fraternity. A man who does not first have Freemasonry in his heart is not likely ever to acquire it in the lodge room. Each investigator indeed has much to consider during his inquiry. How far does he go? How deeply does he delve? What questions are proper to ask? Where is a satisfactory stopping place in his task? There is no easy answer to these questions, but the investigator should go far enough and deep enough to satisfy beyond doubt that the petitioner is indeed worthy of consideration for membership. The investigator, perhaps pushed for time on his assignment, should never, under any circumstance, restrict his inquiry to contacting the petitioner's recommender and asking him for evaluation. When the recommender brought in the petitioner, it is implied that he himself was satisfied. The recommender may thought he knew enough personally about the petitioner to so recommend him, but at the same time he was relying on the committee to obtain the full picture of the petitioner. Nor should the investigator at the last minute before time to report contact other committee members, ask for the results of their discoveries, and if favorable, go along with their reports. Such an investigation on its face is worthless. Each investigator should make an inquiry and file his own report, regardless what the others may do. 
If the investigator needs more time, the Worshipful Master will grant him whatever reasonable time is needed. Freemasonry is in no hurry and works by no timetable. How does one go back conducting a full and proper report? Obviously, no investigation can be foolproof and leave no margin for error or miscalculation. All the highly skilled and professional investigators in the world cannot guarantee the ultimate results of a character investigation. Why? Because men change. A man may be one thing today, another tomorrow. There is always the calculated risk. All of us have read of bankers who, after years of utterly honest dealings, have skipped the country with a suitcase full of money belonging to his depositors. Who has not heard or read of a minister with a wife and family who runs off with a pretty young widow in his choir? Who has not heard or read of the respected public official who, after a quarter century of honorable service, suddenly succumbs to a ruffian named bribery? No amount of investigation can fully prevent such occurrences. But generally speaking, the investigator should explore all the sources of information to ascertain that 1. The petitioner is a man who first has Freemasonry in his heart. 2. He is a man of unimpeachable character who enjoys a good reputation among his friends, neighbors, acquaintances, and associates wherever he is known. 3. He, and possibly his wife, clearly understand that if he is accepted into the fraternity, he must sacrifice some time and energy which call for evenings away from home. 4. He has a record for paying his just debts and living up to his word, and has no record of living in a dissolute life or having immoderate habits. 5. He has no criminal record. 6. He has sufficient education to be able to grasp and retain the precepts of Freemasonry as taught him in the Lodge. 7. He is literate and sufficiently fit physically to participate in the degrees. 8. He has filed his petition for the mysteries of Freemasonry of his own free will and accord, and not from any improper solicitation of friends. 9. He is unbiased with any mercenary motives. 10. He does not view the craft lodge as being nothing more than a stepping stone for what he thinks is something more desirable or where he can have more fun, but where admission is dependent upon his being a member of the lodge and in good standing. The investigator must explore all these areas in detail. He should conduct each inquiry with the utmost tact, discretion, and diplomacy. Derogatory information developed from the investigation does not become a subject for later gossip and rumors and talk to the detriment of the petitioner, whether he is accepted or rejected. A negative investigation is utterly worthless. It is not acceptable for the investigator to file a favorable report because he talked to a number of persons who said, I never heard anything against him. An investigator might talk to scores of people who could say that much. What the investigator is looking for are positive statements attesting to the petitioner's good name or his bad name, as the case may be. Advantages of Masonic Investigation Masonic investigation is obviously beneficial to preserve the reputation of the craft, to ensure harmony, to promote our advancement and our progress in our service to God and man, to maintain our reputation before the world, and to confound our enemies by accepting none but good men and making better men of them, men whom we are proud to address as brothers, men who can be counted on to practice fidelity even unto death, if need be, to keep the faith of our Masonic ancestors and to pass it on in unsullied to our Masonic descendants. Make Freemasonry hard to get into. Don't sell it cheaply. Worthy men and worthy men only are the ones we want. We cannot afford less. Appeal to Masonic Investigators Not only is your lodge dependent on you as a successful investigator, so are your neighboring lodges, your Grand Lodge, and Freemasonry the world over. This is a universal brotherhood. What affects one affects all. 
When you admit a man to the degrees and to the status of Master Mason, you are opening thousands upon thousands of doors to him over the Masonic world. You are giving him the right to wear the square encompasses and to have a claim upon the kindness of millions of Freemasons. Let us never forget one of the great maxims of Freemasonry, careful inquiry into the physical, intellectual, and moral fitness of every candidate for the mysteries of Freemasonry is indispensable. All the components of the craft look to you, the investigator. You are under the gravest obligation to discharge your duty to the very best of your ability. When you have accomplished this duty with efficiency, zeal, impartiality, you will have rendered your brethren, wherever dispersed, an invaluable service. You will have complied with the dictates of your own conscience and the Masonic law which specifies your duty in this field. Your compensation will be the satisfaction of a job well done and the knowledge that you have been the eyes and ears of the craft during this period. Whether spoken or not, you will have earned the gratitude of your brethren. You, the investigator, have a solemn responsibility. Look well to it. And then there's a postscript. You, brethren, who recommend petitioners to receive Masonic degrees also have the solemn obligation of attending the degrees of your recommendees and of serving as guides to them in the search for the lost word. Look well to it, too. The following article is from the May-June 2004 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry. Perhaps the challenges that Freemasonry presents to us are not so much obstacles in our path as they are invitations to flex and stretch our Masonic muscles. The Spiritual Challenge of Freemasonry J. M. Kinney, 32nd Degree Freemasonry prides itself on offering an opportunity for its members to grow in self-awareness and service to others. We take good men and make them better is a familiar Masonic slogan, and the same principle is embodied in the symbolism of the new candidate as a rough ashlar that will, with proper effort, become smooth and square. This potential for more light is compatible with all major religions and points to what might be called a generic spiritual perspective. The assumption that a belief and trust in deity and in an afterlife combined with self-restraint and compassion for and service to others leads one over time to a closer alignment with God's will. I call this a spiritual, not a religious perspective, because it is an underlying principle regarding the individual's relationship to the divine that is not the exclusive claim of any one religion, but rather a common ground shared by all. Alas, as we know all too well, Traveling this rough and rugged road is hardly a cakewalk, and we face many challenges on this spiritual journey. Circumscribing our desires and keeping our passions within due bounds are enough to keep most of us busy for the rest of our lives. These tasks of moderation, or the middle way, point to one of the common components of every spiritual tradition, the struggle to overcome the ego's appetite for self-gratification and aggrandizement. The familiar vow, not mine, but thine, O Lord, is echoed in every religion in some fashion, and the believer is encouraged to continually pare his ego back to a manageable size, if not transcend it altogether. Indeed, a lodge full of inflated egos battling each other for attention and the final word is not a pretty sight. Hence the urge towards fraternal harmony implies a brotherhood of men with egos in check. Thus it seems more than a little ironic that institutional Freemasonry has come to rely on a steady diet of awards, certificates, plaques, and other honors as rewards for a brother's good works and service. This is, of course, in the best tradition of positive reinforcement, and I am not advocating that we drop the practice, especially given my own gratitude for those honors that I have received upon occasion. Nevertheless, 
one has to wonder whether each new honor doesn't represent yet another opportunity for the ego to tiptoe past its due bounds and run away with the show. This inherent conflict between masonry as a spiritual journey and masonry as a civic institution is hardly of recent vintage. It has been there from the very start. Masonic history provides accounts of early English Grand Lodges parading in public, a rather conspicuous display of good men taking pride in their goodness. Such practices proved sufficiently annoying to some that a whole genre of mock masons, such as the scald miserable masons in the 18th century England and the clampers in 19th century California, sprang up to parody what they saw as Masonic pomposity. Most seasoned practitioners of the spiritual path indicate that a regular practice of meditation or quiet reflection is helpful in keeping grounded and detached from one's distracting desires. Here, too, Freemasonry presents a challenge to its members, as it is quite easy to have every minute of one's spare time taken up with Masonic meetings, practices, degrees, appendant body meetings, dinners, trips, and work parties. As I recently mentioned to a friend and brother, perhaps the real Masonic slogan should be, we take busy men and make them busier. Finally, there is the challenge of what might be called the Masonic persona. This is the public face that we present to other brethren. While this varies from individual to individual, there does seem to be some curious phenomenon of some Masons who come across as all persona. Hands are shook, bluff greetings given, small talk made, but at the end of the day, one has no inkling of the real person behind the social mask. This is, of course, a common coping device in the business world and in the social sphere in general. After all, one can't be an instant close friend of everyone, nor would one want to be. Still, to reside entirely in one's persona is to miss the benefit of both giving and receiving brotherly love. Personas aren't brothers. Only the individuals inside the shells can aspire to real brotherhood. Of course, it has also been said that the spiritual journey is primarily a series of challenges to be overcome, that muscles that are never flexed rapidly lose their mass. In light of this, perhaps the challenges that Freemasonry presents to us are not so much obstacles in our path as they are invitations to flex and stretch our Masonic muscles. Athletes speak of no pain, no gain. Maybe a Masonic spiritual counterpart might be no might, no light. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.